Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that grace reigns in a believer's life where sin used to reign. Today we'll study where this reign of grace began and its characteristic of righteousness through Christ Jesus. All right, turn with me please to the book of Romans. And I would like to go back to chapter 5 and verse 21. I want to read from verse number 20, and, and, uh, but I will focus on verse 21. And I hope that this will be the uh, last message on this chapter, and we can move into chapter 16. Um, let's read from verse number 20 and verse number 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's just have a short word of prayer. Father, we come to your word this evening, and we have one single solitary desire, and that is to understand its teaching. We pray that you might help us to grasp what the Apostle Paul is saying, that we can comprehend with all the saints, the glorious salvation that we have and the final assurance we have in terms of our own eternal security. We thank you for the exhaustive way in which the Apostle Paul has dealt and is dealing with this subject. The Apostle obviously felt that this was perhaps one of the premier doctrines that the Christian need to grasp because the enemy who confronted our Lord came to him and said, if thou be the son of God. The arrogance of such a statement is mind-boggling that he will be so audacious as to do that. And there's no doubt that he will come to us as your children. And if he tempted your son as to his sonship, we at times in our lives, sometimes at a very low point, can expect he will assault us at that very level of our insecurity. It is then that we need to turn to this great mighty chapter of Romans and quote as you did, it is written, so that the enemy may be put to flight because all silly arguments cannot match his brilliance. It's only that we have a final word of authority that once we assert it and affirm it, the enemy has no answer to scripture. Would you help us therefore as your people to always try to understand the word, always try to appreciate the importance of the word in our lives. Would you help me this evening as I deal once again with this subject, not to deal with it in a boring way, but in a way that somehow believers perk up the loins of their minds and are willing to pay attention to fully grasp the full meaning of this passage. Give us insight this evening. 
allow that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher that he would find through the exposition of this passage uh, sufficient data to impress upon our minds so that we having become enlightened we rejoice in the knowledge of the truth and we experience greater freedom from doubt and fears and uncertainty for you've said in your word it's the truth that should set us free I ask you for help I ask for your guidance I ask for your mercy I pray for your wisdom and your strength I ask for your unction I pray for your enlightenment I ask the paraclete the teacher the comforter the one who will bring things to our understanding and our minds to operate and use the, the word of God tonight uh, to bring us to the fullest knowledge of the truth that is here before us whatever is accomplished this evening uh, we'll thank you and we'll praise you we'll glorify you and we'll acknowledge that your word is true and you've exalted above your name we pray for your mercy and your grace now as we look into this passage in Christ's name Amen Dr. Lloyd-Jones says of our text verse number 21 that is one of Paul's most comprehensive verses and it puts the whole gospel of grace in one big thrilling statement that's a mouthful but what he's saying basically that we have in this particular passage is summation of what the gospel of grace is all about now remember that Paul has been arguing that where sin abounded grace much more did abound Paul has pointed out to the believer that grace has overwhelmed sin that grace has swept sin away like a mighty rushing torrent that sin grace has gobbled up sin and that no matter how grave the problem of sin was God's grace was far beyond the match of sins problem so whatever is true of sin and whatever sin has done to humankind the grace of God through Jesus Christ has done something even far more greater and far more infinite than sin and Paul is now elevating grace and pointing out to us that just as of the time when sin reigned now Paul says grace has now dethroned sin and now God's grace reigns on his throne you notice that the Apostle Paul in dealing with the subject he employs the device the literary device called personification uh, what it means by that personification is when you give human characteristics to something that is inanimate or to, to something that is not living so when Paul talks about sin reigning and grace reigning he's talking to them as though they were persons on a throne uh, and so Paul is using this in a very uh, in, a, in a literary way uh, and, and he's trying to explain that one has been disposed and one has been elevated now why do you suppose the Apostle Paul would use this term and use this literary device of personification and talk about sin reigning and grace reigning? I think the reason why Paul does that is because Paul wants us to understand the power of sin in our lives. And he also wants to understand the power of grace that has succumbed and that has overcome this problem of sin. In other words, when you think of fallen man we think that fallen man is under the cruel bondage of sin 
He cannot liberate himself, he cannot emancipate himself, and he cannot extricate himself from his condition. And the reason why he cannot do this is because he is bound by three things. He's in bondage to his own desires. He's in darkness so that his mind needs to be enlightened. And he is in a very state of death where he's not only insensitive to God, he is naturally hostile towards God. That is every man outside of Jesus Christ. He's under the dominion of sin. Sin reigns in his life. And by the way, we have to feel sorry for those people. You know, it's easy. Look, I have a don't want to say too much because it's not a pleasant thing to say. I have a, a neighbor that my heart is broken for. The cars that come and pick up the young girl, she, she can't be more than 14 or 15. She might be 12. I see her leave her mom's home. She goes to another home in the area. I, I don't go. I'm not a peeping Tom in this case, by the way. <laughs> I'm not. But I see it. And I, my heart is broken for that young girl. By the way, I, I, I don't want to pat my back. Not to, but you know, when Christmas came, I, I, I just went and bought a ham. Went and bought chicken, put it in a bag, and I just knocked at the door and said, listen, enjoy your Christmas. See, uh, yeah. But I, I feel for that situation. How can a mother allow something to, like this to happen? She herself, by the way, is down the same road. And you know, it's easy to curse her and damn her and condemn her. But the more I look at her situation, she's in bondage. She is not only in bondage, she is now putting her daughter in bondage. That's the power of sin. What mother worth any salt would use her daughter in that way? And it's very easy for us to pontificate about their condition and, and, and that lambaste them with all kinds of negativity. But when you begin to understand what Paul talks about in this passage, the reign of sin, the bondage, the darkness... That they find themselves in. It is then that you have a, a, a sympathetic heart. You know why? Because you remember when you were in that situation as well. Maybe not doing the same thing. But just under the control of sin. In ways that if we were to share in this church. Some of you are not as nice as you think you look. Yeah, yeah. Some of you might look fine and dandy. And you have a plastic smile and you look okay. But if I knew your story and the other people know your story. And the things you did. And by the way, it's not just the things you did, the things you thought of doing. The things you would have done if you could have done it. If I would have played that right now on a video of tape, I would suggest to you, say, Pastor, stop there, please. See? That's how we were. See? And that's how every man outside of Jesus Christ is. He's in bondage. Sin reigns see? in his life. Sin dominates his life. But the only answer to sin... The only answer to man's dreadful condition is that he needs a power that is superior to his sin. And the Apostle Paul is saying that a great power called grace has confronted sin, dethroned sin, and guess what? Instated his own kingdom and his own dynasty. So Paul is saying in this passage that while sin abounded, grace much more abound, and where sin once reigned, now, cry, uh, now grace reigns. This is what Paul is arguing here 
in this passage. He is saying that the only thing that could defeat sin was grace. And not only did sin defeat grace, but he points out that grace has been enthroned by God. And the Apostle Paul is now talking about the glory and the triumph of his grace and the reign of grace. Now I want to pick up this subject once more. And I want to look at two things tonight. I want to look at the origin of the reign of grace. When did grace sit on the throne? And then secondly, I want to talk about the character of this, this throne of grace. What does it look like? And uh, Paul answers those, that question in this same verse. Now before I do that tonight, I just want to remind you of what we mean by grace. Grace is God's gratuitous kindness towards us. Grace is God's undeserved favor towards us. Grace is God's unmerited love towards us. God, grace is God's free pardon of us as sinners. This is what grace is. Grace means that you and I did not have one scintilla. I repeat, one scintilla of merit in us. That we justly deserve the full wrath of God. But nevertheless, God has chosen to show favor towards us who don't deserve it. See, that is what we mean by grace. And in the coming, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection, and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, God in his grace has defeated sin, and now God's grace reigns triumphant in heaven the throne in heaven is not a throne of judgment any longer. It's a throne of grace. The point is, grace reigns. Two questions to ask tonight. Number one, when did this reign of grace begin? You know, sometimes we give the impression that the Old Testament is all law, and in the Testament is all grace. So we get the impression that there's a conflict between grace and law. The truth of the matter is that uh, to your uh, discovery, to my, uh, maybe even your dismay, you will discover that long before there was law, there was grace. Grace did not start reigning when Christ came. See, we'll talk about that very shortly. And then the other thing is this, what's the character of this kingdom or this throne of grace? You notice what he says there? That as sin has reigned unto death. So might grace reign through what? Righteousness. The character of grace that reigns is characterized by righteousness. I, I want to make that very clear. We must never put grace and righteousness at odds with each other. And the moment we separate and divide grace and righteousness, we create and open a Pandora's box of evil. And when Paul is talking about grace, notice that he brings in righteousness. Grace reigns but through righteousness. And it's not your righteousness, not my righteousness. It's through the righteousness of Christ. I'm coming to that to let you understand why it is important for us to understand this. Remember, let me just not get ahead of myself. But I want to explain to you why it is so important to understand that grace reigns because of the righteousness of Christ. Let me put it this way. Without the righteousness of Christ, there's no grace for you. There's no grace for me. What Christ has done for us on the cross has enabled God to show favor towards us. And that's why Paul links the two together. Now do you see the glory of that? 
The reason why I have grace is because of Christ's righteousness. So if I am saved by grace, I know one thing. As long as that righteousness is perfect before God, I am safe and secure. That's Paul's argument, you know. Remember the theme of this whole chapter? I'll elaborate on that as we go on. But I just want to just give you a little tidbit that that's why Paul puts this in here. You ask, well, why does he deal with this? Why does he put it at this juncture? Because I will tell you this and be very honest with you. All of us have a problem understanding how somebody can love us and we don't deserve being loved. Every one of us got that problem. Why would God love me? Why would God care about me? I didn't care about God. I wasn't seeking after God. I've broken all of God's laws. So why, why does he show me grace? And all of us have a little, I must say, a little doubt in the back of our mind that surely I must do something to make God love me. Surely I must do something to, to, to be sure I have eternal life. And we, we wrestle with that. We may not want to admit it. And this is why the Apostle Paul is letting us know that the way and the reason why God shows grace towards you is because it is Christ's righteousness that makes grace possible to you. So as long as that righteousness remains, grace is yours. So you are secure because you're in grace. The glory of the truth that Paul is trying to get across, if we can only just grasp it for just a moment, it would really have a transformative effect in how we view our Christian life and how secure we feel in Christ. But let's look at the, first of all, the origin of the reign of grace. When did grace begin? Now every monarch and every king has a dynasty. Every monarch and every king has a pedigree. You are, and by the way, you're always tracing back the, the king back to his ancestors. That's how we became king. Whether you're dealing with Haile Selassie I or not, or you're dealing with, uh, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, you're, you're dealing with the dynasty. They always talk about the, the dynasty that goes back from the Queen of Sheba. It's the dynastic connection that makes them king. You know, Joe that comes to our church, uh, he hasn't been here for a while because he does security work. That is from um, Dominica. You know, his brother was the king of the Caribs in Dominica. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, he's the king. He's no longer the king. He's just been deposed. So somebody has now replaced him. But you know how he... Be I asked Job, how do you become king? It has to do with your ancestry, your descendants. And if you're in a certain line, you're in line to be king. I'm saying that to say this, that when you look at grace, it has a wonderful dynasty and it has a wonderful pedigree. And you know when this pedigree began and when this tendency began to end, when was the inauguration of the reign of grace? There are many times in the Bible we are given an answer, but I think one of the best answers we are ever given about when grace started is when we look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Look there for just a moment. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20, if you look at verse uh, 19, first of all, he says, uh, he says, for you, know, for you know that you were not redeemed, in verse 18, with, uh, redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with, uh, uh, from your vain conversation, received from tradition by your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And notice, who, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. 
This inauguration of grace, this enthronement of grace, uh, was established long before there was time. The reign of grace began in eternity. The reign of grace began before this world existed. The reign of grace began before man was created. When the eternal God, the triune eternal God got together and sat down to discuss the whole matter of creation. When this eternal God saw that man would fall, the question was, what will we do with man? Should we wipe man off the planet? Should we obliterate him? Should we exterminate him and start another race? What do we do? And the eternal council of the Godhead decided, we will not destroy all men. We will extend grace. See? So long before man ever came to existence, God said, I will put grace on the throne. No matter what happens to humankind, I will extend grace to him. Theologically, theologians call this the covenant of redemption. And the moment the decision was made that man would not be wiped out and man would not be obliterated, three conclusions were reached. Number one, the Father's purpose to save those who believe was put into operation. We will save those who believe. That was the Father's purpose. The Son willfully subordinated that he would carry out the Father's purpose and he would die on the cross on the behalf of humankind so that that pardon might be granted. And the Holy Spirit volunteered that he would come and deal with fallen man and he would woo man and apply the redemptive work of Christ to the life of the one that believes. I'm saying to you tonight, that the enthronement and the plan of grace was inaugurated from the very foundations of the world. Grace was not a reactive plan. Hey, we are surprised that this has happened. This is not what we thought would happen. We didn't know this was going to happen. Just a surprise. Absolutely not. Grace was a proactive plan. It was anticipated. It was known. And therefore grace was put on the throne way before Way before there was a world, way before there was humankind, grace reigned on the throne because the eternal God sat down in the eternal council and decided we will act in grace towards man. That is how ancient the pedigree of grace is. And so Paul is here reminding us of the reign of grace. So this glorious reign of grace did not be begun in, in, in New Testament times. It has a very ancient genealogy. And grace is something that runs from the book of Genesis right through the Bible. God acting in grace. I was going to do another sermon on the victories of grace. And what I was going to do basically is trace through the Old Testament when we thought that there was no hope. All of mankind would have been destroyed in the flood. And Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. See? At every juncture in human history, where it seemed as though man would be obliterated, God acted in grace. There were times when it was a, they were not even sure that any survivors on David's throne, so the Messiah would come. And then miraculously, God intervened and saved one of the little children and hid him in the temple. 
That is grace. Right through the Old Testament, God is acting in grace. There was a time when we thought the whole nation of Israel would be killed. You remember Haman? A decree is made, all the Jews to be wiped out. But then God acted in grace and used a little woman called Esther. The grace of God preserved the nation because the Messiah has got to come. Because from eternity, he would die and put grace on the throne. See? The victories of grace. But that's not my intent tonight. My intent tonight is just simply to say to you that this distinguished king that rules on God's throne is not a recent monarch. He's an ancient monarch from eternal, for eternal, eternity. His pedigree and his genealogy reaches far back beyond time into the very eternal counsel of God. He started reigning then. And that is why for the first time that Eve and Adam sinned, God comes to the flat and makes a promise. I will, you would bruise the, the, the woman's seed, but the woman's seed would crush your head. See, that's grace. See, that's grace. Cain kills Abel and we panic. But out of Abel comes Seth, the next in line. Grace. God acted in grace and God ensuring that grace reigns at every period in human history. The reign of grace is made prominent in scripture. So the boast of earthly kings and earthly thrones, there's no resemblance between these earthly monarchs and this ancient eternal monarch whose genealogy stretches back into eternity. There's no comparison whatsoever. Grace reigns and the origin of the reign of grace is distinguished by that long period in eternity where he was enthroned in the eternal counsel of God. That brings me to the second point. As we trace the history of grace, the second thing that concerns us is the character of this throne. Uh, notice what Paul says back in uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse uh, number 21. The Apostle Paul, in dealing with the reign of grace, he said that as sin have reigned, by the way, the character of the reign of sin is death. Everything that sin put its hands on, it dies. Of course, there's physical death, but it's far beyond that. Relationships die. Everything dies. Everything that death, sin has put its hand on, dies. That was the character of the reign of death. And now Paul contrasts that with the character of the reign of grace. And Paul says the reign of grace is, is by righteousness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's defining the nature and he's defining the character of the throne of grace. Now I think you know this. Every single kingdom and every single government has a defining quality that marks out what this government is all about. Um... Some feature distinguishes it. To some governments today, the, 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 the thing that they, is what they call diversity. That, that's the distinguishing mark. We're going to put a big tent and we want everybody under the tent. Any and everybody. So the, the, the key thing there is for some governments, it's law. The rule of law. Not anarchy, the rule of law. There's a distinction in char uh, characteristic, the nature 
of a particular kingdom. For some kingdoms, it is known for its ferocity and its cruelty. The Medo-Persian Empire, for example, is known for that. For other kingdoms, it is known for its generosity. It's characterized by some quality. For some uh, kingdoms, it's known for its laxity and, you know, kind of it, it runs without any real parameters. It's every man do his own thing. For others, it's very well organized and very systematized and legalistic, as it were. The character of kingdoms. There are some kingdoms that are known for their advancements in, in science and other, other achievements. There are some that are known for their accomplishments. That's the key thing that marks that kingdom. So what's the outstanding characteristic therefore of the kingdom of grace? What defines this kingdom? What characterizes this kingdom? Because the moment you talk about grace, which is unmerited favor, we get the opinion that it means that it doesn't matter how we live now. That's how people perceive grace. The Apostle Paul leaves us in no doubt as to what is the chief characteristic and feature of grace. The Apostle Paul lets us know that the key thing about this kingdom of grace that it rules by righteousness through Jesus Christ. The question is, what does that mean? What does that mean? How are we to grasp the meaning of this passage? And how does it apply to us? Some people, by the way, tend to see grace as something quite weak and flabby. But I remind you, the reason why Paul is using the personification and talking about these as though they are reigning kings and giving human characteristics to the reign is because the emphasis there is on the power. See? That these are like living things that control. And the same way sin controlled us before, grace now should control us. That's what Paul is saying. You can't, the compassion, you can't say that sin was so dominant in our lives and now grace is so flabby in our lives. If sin reigned and controlled, certainly grace reigned must control too. Paul is very, very careful about this matter. There are those that think that when we talk about grace, it means that God ignores sin and God forgets sin. And God pretends that sin doesn't happen or never happens. The third group of the opinion that grace means that God has set aside his law. So the law has no any more purpose. It's like God shelved the law and man no longer has to recognize the law. The people who think that, even Christians think that. But if you did that, you're destroying God's character because the law is an expression of God's character. It's just that the law has to be used lawfully, Paul says. We don't abandon the law. Which is what the church has done, by the way. In its attempt to preach grace, it has just completely abandoned the law. So that the man sits in the pew, he doesn't have any consciousness that he's sinning. He doesn't see any reason why he should repent. Because he's told from beginning to the end, God loves you. The Apostle Paul is trying to, in a sense, I don't know if he was prophetic and he understood where the church would be at this period in our history. But he's very much concerned to know that once he mentions grace, righteousness is not the antithesis of grace. They're together. There are people who think that and say because there's no more law, we can sin with impunity. Sin doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is Grace. By the way, such thinking is alien to the Apostle Paul's theology. 
Because you will find that in the next chapter we're coming to, this is the problem Paul had. He just, he just beefing up grace. He thought grace reigning. But you see the next few verses, look at what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He knew the danger of elevating grace was that somehow it would, it would motivate people to live careless lives. And since we're sin abounded, grace much more abounded, the idea was, well, if that is true, let us sin more to we get more grace. And Paul has to deal with that in chapter 6, dealing with the whole doctrine of sanctification. That the power of sin is broken in the believer's life. I repeat, the power of sin is broken in the believer's life. I didn't say the believer is perfect. I didn't say the believer can't sin. But the power of sin is broken. The domination of sin in his life is broken. He's no longer a slave to sin. Neither can he be. And if he finds himself in that position, he ought to ask him question, one question. Do I really know this God? Do I really have real salvation? That's the question you should ask himself. Not rushing to a verse and building up a hope where there should be no hope. Let every man examine himself, Paul says, to see if he's in the faith. These are terrible words, but words that need to be stated again and again from the pulpit. Because the chief characteristic of our time is deception. Our Lord warns us again, deception, deception. That would be the chief characteristic of our times. And that is why it's so important to delve into the scripture to understand what the Apostle Paul and the Word of God is teaching. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is not separating and creating the dichotomy between grace and righteousness because to do so would only create chaos and havoc. As I said in my introduction, it only opens a whole Pandora box of evil. In fact, Jude had this problem to deal with as well, not just the Apostle Paul. If you just look for Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude comes before Revelation, so if you don't know your Bible, find Revelation and move it back, you'll find Jude. But, but let me show you uh, what Jude says in verse number 4 of Jude. He said in verse number 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of our common salvation, that's what we plan. I, I, I plan to write to you about salvation, explain the doctrine of salvation. But it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. I had to stop. Because when I see what is happening and what is already beginning to infiltrate the New Testament church, I want to have you defend the faith. Now here is what why he had to defend the faith. Notice. For there are certain men crept in unawares. They're creepers. See? They're coming secretly, privately, privily into the church. Who were before ordained to this condemnation. Notice ungodly men doing what? Turning the grace of God into what? Lasciviousness. Using grace as a basis for immorality. One of the persons I've counseled uh, went 
to the pastor and was explaining their problems. And when she told me what the pastor told her, I almost fainted. Imagine a pastor saying to a woman who's got having problems with a marriage. This is what he says to her. I'm just sharing this with you. By the way, you don't know who I'm talking about. If I sleep with you, if I sleep with you, you would turn around and make me feel bad. Now, why do you suggest that? What pastor, I said to her, but what pastor would say that to a woman? He should be defaulted immediately. He doesn't belong in the church. He doesn't belong in the pulpit. The mere suggestion. I think he was throwing out a line to hear how she would respond. Listen to me. When you don't follow the truth of God's word, there are men in the pulpit who just see the women in the church as bedfellows. Who use the grace of God for lasciviousness. There are people who come into the church and they're looking for a woman. Or they're looking for a man. It's not God they want. It's not scripture they're concerned about. They're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. I tell you this. I, I don't know. Uh, and by the way, I, 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 my problem is this. I try to put myself in that situation. And ask myself, but how could a pastor ever say something like that? What kind of a man is he? See? We see what Jude is saying. I, had a, I was attempted to talk about salvation, but I realized that when people creep into the church already, you tearing the grace of God into using religion to sleep with the women in the church. Winning their confidence. Now every one of them, by the way, that I, uh, I, I deal with, I said, you, you, you know why we've got glass here in the, in the glass windows? You know, you know why we got that? I, I explained to them and I said, I said to them, you know, you know I don't counsel women by themselves? I'll never counsel a woman, I said, unless I got somebody in the next room. I'm not going to put myself in a trap. But there are men, believe in me, their ambition is to put as many notches on their gun as possible and in the pulpit and shit me in the pulpit. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And that's why Jude said, I had to stop writing to you about salvation and say, you gotta, I gotta contend for the faith. What the faith? The faith is about holiness. It's about righteousness. Grace and righteousness must never be separated. There must not be a false dichotomy between these two things. So I'm saying to you tonight, that the Apostle Paul is trying to say to us that the chief characteristic of this kingdom called grace is righteousness. And that seems a contradiction when you begin to look at that particular term. So to understand what Paul is saying, I want to remind you again that there's one or two things we need to keep in mind while Paul is dealing with this. The first thing I mentioned before that we've got to remember the subject Paul is dealing with is the assurance of the believer's salvation, that the believer is eternally secure. Paul has not left that subject yet. He only leaves it when you creep into chapter 6. He's still dealing with this whole matter. He's still arguing for the believer's eternal security based on grace. But the problem we have, and I have, and we all have it sometimes, is how can somebody just love us? How can he just love us for no reason at all? Why does he show grace to me? Why can I believe that I have the grace of God in my life? 
Paul has to establish why we can depend upon grace. That grace of God towards us is dependent on Christ's righteousness. Now that changes the whole complexion altogether. Now I can depend on grace. Not how good I am, what I've done, but because the righteousness of Christ has now enabled God to extend grace to us. You see the connection? The Apostle Paul is not juxtaposing terms without even thinking of what he's doing. He understands fully what he's doing. And he wants the believer to understand that this problem of grace that you have, you can't believe a loving God so that I don't have to do anything. It's not my works, it's not my deeds, it's not how good I am. That's a puzzle for everybody. But then we understand that that grace is free to us, but came at infinite price to Christ. And it's his righteousness though that allows God to show grace. So God's grace towards us never changes. Why? Because Christ's life never changes. It's eternal as Christ's righteousness is. So that's why we are in eternal grace. And you can ground your salvation in that. Once it becomes very clear that you are now in the realm of eternal grace. The only time that could ever change is if the righteous Christ changed. And he can't change because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The glory of grace. The Apostle Paul is dealing with. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us the barriers that stand in the way between God and man and how the righteousness of Christ broke those barriers. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268 462 42 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.